Hello from Evolve Law Summit in New York City. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Mike Suchland. Lorraine Pendleton. David S. Rose. Jeroen Plink. Ed Wilson. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Hi, uh, we're still here at the Evolve Law Summit in New York City. More specifically, we're at the galvanized New York City campus in West Soho. I think I've got that right so far. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Yeah, great. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Welcome to the show. So uh, obviously, you just got done, or actually a little while ago, because we've had lunch and there's been some one-on-one sessions, but you were presenting at the panel called Venture Capital and Angel Investment. How'd it go? Cool. Yeah, it was fun. Good. Awesome. Well, I was in the audience. I thought it went really well, but I thought I'd uh, test you guys to see if you thought the same thing. But uh, anyway, before we get started on that, I figure we probably should get to know you a little bit uh, just for the benefit of our audience. So I'm going to start with the moderator. I'm going to start with Ed. So Ed, where do you work? What do you do? Uh, So I work, uh, I'm an investor with Anthos Capital. Um, We are a $300 million fund based out of Santa Monica, um, and we kind of focus more on the growth stage of things. Okay, let me ask a quick follow-up, and then same to everybody. Uh, what types of organizations do you fund? Everything. Everything. Everything under the sun. I mean, we're generalist investors, and so what I like to think about is not necessarily the latest trends that are happening, but what are massive markets that are being disrupted by new technology, a new brand, something along those lines that people can build a business that will do over $100 million in revenue. Jeroen, same questions. So I was I'm the former CEO for Practical Law US, uh, and I'm currently advising a bunch of companies on the board of a few legal tech startups, and I'm angel investing in, in quite a few uh, legal tech startups primarily. And David? I wear several hats. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I am a serial angel investor. I founded New York Angels. I wrote the book on angel investing. I also wrote the book on startups called The, the Startup Checklist. Uh, and in addition to all that, having invested in 120 some odd companies, I also founded and run a company called Gust, which is uh, the ultimate company platform. It's the infrastructure platform for the whole world of early stage startups and investors. Excellent. And Lorene? Hi, I'm an angel investor. Um, I'm with a couple of angel groups, one Pipeline Angels and the other Portfolio Fund. I've made investments in legal tech companies, but I also invest in various different types of companies. So that's what I do outside of work, my day job. I'm the U.S. Director of Business Development at Denton's. It's the world's largest law firm. Excellent. And Mike? Hi, I'm uh, the principal responsible for Joplin Consulting, which primarily advises private equity firms on uh, buy transactions with an emphasis on legal workflow software. And I'm also an angel investor in the legal marketplace. And formerly, I was uh, the president of Thomson Reuters, so I bring a 15-year legal background to that role. And what organizations do you look to fund? Primarily organizations that focus on legal workflow software within the legal vertical. All right, perfect. So Obviously, we're here to talk about your panel. I want to get the uh, 50,000 foot, so I'm going to turn once again to Ed, the moderator. Well, I think that anytime you do one of these panels over here, I think you look at your audience and you kind of understand what what would be the most valuable thing for them. Uh, a lot of the people in the audience were people who were starting companies, so having a panel of angel investors that are around me here um, was really a great way for them to ask questions that they normally don't get to ask, You know, prepare themselves for when they actually have these one-on-one meetings with people. 
Excellent. Excellent. So I saw a couple of quotes out there. I was taking some notes. And so you, you were talking about uh, kind of the ideal organizations and ideal people that you like to work with when you uh, pursue some of these companies to fund. And so I want to turn to Yarun. You said this, one of the important things I like to work with people I like, I don't like to work with, and I'm going to paraphrase, a-holes. So, um, so just uh, give us a little bit on that, you know, the importance of working with people that you like. I mean, I'm, I'm doing the, the, the investing mostly for fun. And life is too short to spend time with people I don't like. And so most of the companies I invest in have CEOs that, that really are inspiring. Mike and I are investors in a couple of companies. And, and some of them I have meetings with uh, on a regular basis. And I walk out of them always knowing more or having learned more than I knew before I went into the meeting. And there, so that to me is one of the big values of investing in, in the startups is meeting interesting people. And life's too short to spend it with people I don't like. There you go. And Mike, you said something about scrappy people. So scrappy in terms of ability to make pivots. Yeah. So when uh, in my investing experience, one of the themes I found is that Often entrepreneurs will hit a brick wall and the ones that succeed are able to either go through that wall or go around it or go over it. But the ones who stop and keep trying the same thing are the ones who aren't successful. So to me, scrappiness is the ability to get down and dirty, get into the bricks, chisel away the mortar, break through hopefully, and that could potentially result in fundamental changes to the business in order to pursue the successful path that the uh, business will ultimately drive in order to uh, the long-term vision. Excellent. And so, David, you also said something really interesting. You said every single area of legal work is being disrupted. Without question. Um, we are living in an era of exponential technological growth, and that means it's not growing linearly, like oh, today is a little bit more than yesterday and tomorrow will be a little bit more than today. We're talking about doubling literally every 18, 12 to 18 to 24 months Technology, as we see it, is getting twice as powerful, twice as fast, at half the cost, and this is affecting absolutely every single thing in our society. We've seen it with Uber and taxis and Airbnb with hotels and, and you know eBay with auctions and everything. And the almost the very, very last, last thing, the last bastion of technological inroads has been in the legal world, which has been historically been a very personally driven, personal service operation. Uh, the only thing worse than, than uh, legal is real estate. And so what you're seeing now is is the legal world has finally gotten on the ball. Um, and just if you look around at the conference over here, all of these literally dozens of companies that are doing technology applied to the legal world and the hundreds of them, other ones around the world, the legal world is in for a major disruption that it has not seen yet uh, and that it's going to affect it just the way other industries have been disrupted. I would offer a soft counterpoint to what David said, which is that I agree that um, disruption is increasing. The number of startups within the legal world is increasing. I think that's good for the industry. I think also that lawyers tend to be slow adopters of technology, and uh, most private equity firms and investors see that slower adoption curve. For instance, SaaS software is probably five years behind in the legal industry where it is in um, other B2B-type communities. And so I think the question is, Will the attitude of uh, the law firm and the attitude of the general counsel evolve with the rest of the market at a pace that will support the, and sustain this disruptive influence? Oh, well, I absolutely agree that they're slow and it's dragging feet and it's 
really painfully slow for all the poor tech companies that are here trying to sell into this legal market. That being said, at some point, you can try and say waves go back, but King Canute didn't have a whole lot of success kicking the waves back, and I don't think that the legal world is going to remain immune when the entire rest of the world in every aspect of life, both personal life, consumer, business life, is changing, moving to SaaS, moving to tools. You can only hold out so far. So eventually it's going to happen. I agree with you. It's been remarkably slow, but it's coming. <laughs> but I also think that there's going to be competition from other areas. I think the the big innovators in this space will be the big four, the accountants that in the U.S. are currently still prevented from actually practicing law, although they do a lot of things that are actually very close to practicing law. They do due diligence, they do contract mapping, they do entity management, all the things that were traditionally done by, by law firms. Outside of the United States, where the, the nonsense rule of the UPL doesn't apply, law firms get serious competition from the, the accountants. You're absolutely right. The only saving grace is that the accounting profession is only half a step behind the legal profession in terms of adopting technology. So what you're seeing is not the big four accounting firms that are bringing in legal tech to their clients. It's these you know scrappy third-party startups. It's the zeros and the waves and the quickens and so on and so forth at the, at the early stage world uh, and the oracles and the later stage companies that are doing it from outside the accounting industry per se. But you're absolutely right. It's not, you know, legal does not exist in a vacuum. It's being attacked by all sides. I mean, my business, which is in fundraising, we connect entrepreneurs and startups with, with investors. We, we released uh, a month ago uh, the first company as a service. So literally, if you're a startup company, you press a button, and the next thing you know, we incorporate you. We are your registered agent in Delaware. We handle all of the, the documentation, filing with the state, setting up your whole cap table. If that doesn't look and smell and feel like legal tech, you tell me. You know what? <laughs> so I think this is a great jumping off point. So, you know, you're breaching into my, my next question here. And so this, uh, the Evolve Law Summit, you know, basically has three types of attendee. You have the strategic partners, you have the innovators, and then you have you, the investors, all here, all in the mix here to kind of create uh, a synergy here and maybe some future partnerships. And so that's kind of the lead into my next question. You know, you look out in the audience when you guys were uh, speaking today and you saw a bunch of innovators there and they're looking to you because they're looking for cues and information on how to approach you if they would like to get some funding. So let's let's start with that. What makes the ideal investment? Uh, what are the, the attributes for success for innovative companies that are looking to get some rounds of uh, financing and advice to take their product live? And I think we'll start with Lorene. She's been a little sure. quiet here. So uh, one of the things is, you know, what problem are you solving? You know, what's the pain point? And then what's the solution? So is this really, you know, when I look at an entrepreneur, what they have, a solution, is this really going to solve the problem? And how large is the market? Um, we talked a bit about that on the panel about, you know, for an angel investor, you know, you don't, you don't need a billion dollar market. It's like, you know, if it's a, you know, $50 million market, that's something that would certainly be appealing. So for an angel, that's what I look for, you know, addressable market. And then also the team. Can they execute? What's their domain? Do they have domain expertise in this particular area? For legal tech, it's you know someone who knows the legal industry, whether they're a lawyer or they've worked out you know in the legal industry or they've sold to the legal industry previously. That's that's really important. So those are kind of the the major factors that I look for, and also what well, the business model, revenue model. How are they going to make money? That's important as well. How about you, Mike? Well, I think um, that captured a lot of it. The only thing that I would add is, Yurun talked earlier about. Um, not tolerating a-holes. And I think um, the, you know, the, the nuance that I would add on that is that 
driven, successful people like to see driven, successful people. And people who are not driven and successful tend to be, you know, regarded in different ways. But as a serial investor, like many of us are, what we want to see is we want to see that undying commitment to the success of the vision and the ability through personality and perseverance to be able to create that and to recruit the team and to lead the team and to go to customers and to understand how they're going to create a value proposition that the customers will react to and resonate with. So it's that undefinable quality of not being an a-hole. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, this, this growth in technology has meant that it is much, much easier to start a company now than it ever has been before. And so what that means is the bar to getting financed has been raised much higher than it's before. So I would say the table stakes that everybody has to have happen to be an entrepreneur who can really drive this, somebody with commitment and all the, the attributes you were mentioning, a great team that can actually do this, a really interesting idea, an addressable market. That's where you start. I mean, you don't even get into pitch unless you have that. Uh, and I think that beyond that, the one thing that begins to differentiate companies, the ones that get investment, is traction. And we look at companies, have you gotten somebody to prove that what you've got, you know, the dogs with the dog food? Will somebody out there pay you money for your product or service? And so without traction, these days it is virtually impossible to get funded, no matter how good your team is or how good the entrepreneur is. Yvrun, how about you? Yeah, no, I agree with everything that's been said. I mean, one of the other things that I'm uh, I'm always interested in is to see people who are in the, in the in the team that are coachable and that that actually listen to feedback. I think that's a very important part of being a successful entrepreneur. I also look very much at the ability to sell or uh, identify the weakness in sales. Very few lawyers actually have a background of selling and or understanding how hard it is to sell into a law firm and or into a legal department for that matter. And I think that's something I always look for is, okay, if you don't have the experience yourself to sell, then at least acknowledge the fact that you need help. Okay, so that's something that they reach out to you guys for. So now we're kind of getting into the next one. So we did talk about pitfalls. So pitfalls that plague some of these uh, companies that are coming up there, obviously very taken and centered on the product that they're offering, but they may not be aware of some of the risk factors out there and some of the things that they need to avoid. And so I know that we started talking about that. Mike, you had something to say about this. You said one of the pitfalls with some of these innovation uh, companies is doing too much too early. Yeah, I think, um, well, you can swing both directions. So doing too much too early means not having enough focus to do the thing in the core that's going to be a platform for success going forward. But I I think the second thing that is a pitfall that may be perhaps unanticipated by entrepreneurs is failing with a great value proposition that resonates with customers, but failing because of a lack of capital and not having the runway on a capital to bring that product to a broad enough audience to make it a, a successful value proposition. And so, uh, David, I'm coming to you for this. You said to build something big, you must first start small, and you have to focus on doing it really well. Right. We'd love to see people who want to change the entire world, disrupt everything. The problem with that is that entrepreneurs often try and get from A to Z in one easy step, and it doesn't work that way. You can't boil the ocean. You typically have, or not typically, very often, shall we say, you have entrepreneurs who say they're going to solve problems A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and by the way, they're also going to do it in Chinese simultaneously. And unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. You can't have a one or two person innovative shop of scrappy you know, startups that's going to do everything. So you got to start in one 
place with an MVP, a minimum viable product, get somebody to buy it, use the feedback from those initial customers to improve and tweak and pivot what you're doing. And then at once you've nailed it, then you scale it. And once you scale it, then you try and go to adjacent areas. You make your beachhead and then you can that way dominate the whole world. But if you try and dominate the world, we call it boiling the ocean. Um, it doesn't work. Now, Lorreen, you were uh, focusing on the importance of focus. Yes. So, no, I think it's important, you know, you're launching a business, be hyper-focused on, you know, that problem and your solution that you have. Um, I see entrepreneurs, they want to kind of do everything all at once. It's just really important to, you know, focus on that, that one thing and do it really, really well. And then you can build upon your business. So, that, I mean, that's just really, really, I think, really important. Okay, so the, the next couple of topics we have here, now we've kind of gotten into a little bit, uh, Yurin, you were talking about sales, and uh, Mike, you had an interesting uh, comment about that as well, uh, knowing who the decision maker is and how important that is. But we also talked about exit strategy. But I think before we get there, I think I'd like to talk about sales, because that's kind of earlier in the process than the exit strategy. So I just wanted to kind of go around the room and talk about that, because I think when people get into opening a new business and they see a solution that they can uh, you know, be part of. So they're solving a problem that uh, plagues the legal industry. I think they're not thinking in terms of sales. And you're, you, you're hitting it there. You know, Selling to a legal market is different than other uh, legal markets. And Mike, you said you need to know who the decision maker is. So let's use that as a jumping off point and kind of go around the room and talk about the importance of sales. You know, I think uh, law firms, and particularly large law firms, are partnerships. They're not uh, corporations, they don't have the hierarchy that a typical corporation would have. And so leadership responsibilities tend to be shared across the partnership, whether it's a practice manager that's responsible for a specific area or an administrative officer or the managing director or the head of finance or um, the head of IT. All of those people can potentially have a hand in making decisions about what services and what software the law firm will purchase Typically, there is a key influencer uh, across all of those people that can help guide and navigate across the landscape within the law firm. And so it's important to suss out who that individual is and make sure they're included in the conversations in order to avoid a very prolonged sales cycle. Yeah. So at that practical law, we would map out very, very methodically who we would need to have on board before we got a sale. So we would sometimes in the larger firms, we would enter through the associate level, but we would have mapped out, okay, we need to have spoken to the librarian. We need to have the librarian on board. We need to have in this firm, there's a strong procurement department. So we would have mapped that out at the outset and, and made sure that we hit all the bases. As per David, you cannot do... You cannot go from A to Z without hitting B, C, D, and all the other letters. And so when you're making sales, there's no shortcuts. You need to hit all the bases. What entrepreneurs don't often understand is that legal is not one giant big corporation. There is a, it came clear on the panel that there's a very big difference between the solo practitioner on the one hand and big law, the top two or 300 firms on the other hand. Completely different sales cycles, completely different structures, and adoption is very, very different. That's true in a large sense in corporations also, but as you mentioned, it's very different when you're talking about a partnership without this total command and control structure and everybody in charge of their own practice, their own clients, uh, and as you can't really force adoption on, on people. Uh, so what you're seeing many legal tech companies do is to start off small with the very small boutique firms, with the, the sort of mid-sized firms that are tech forward, that have a reputation for trying out 
new things. And what I would encourage the big law listeners here to do is to open your eyes because this stuff is happening and there's a lot of very interesting things in the space that can make the practice much more efficient and, and effective. And you know, if you want to let the little guys be the ones who take advantage of all this, you know, eventually they'll be the big guys and you won't. And Lorene? Yeah, no, I, I'll echo what uh, some of the other uh, speakers have said. You know, large law firms, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders. Um, and so it's really difficult for a legal tech company to go in and just, you know, sell to one person or, you know, it, there's going to be a lot of people involved. So, you know, I think, and also um, big law, you know, typically won't work with entrepreneurs who are just starting out. You know, they're a bit more risk averse. They want to go with a bigger company. So usually legal tech companies will go and start working with the smaller law firms, you know, initially as clients so they can build a track record and then go to big law because typically big law will not work with, you know, they're, they're risk averse. They have clients. They, they're just risk averse. That's, that's the nature of it. I do think, though, in terms of innovation at law firms, they're going to be dragged into that because clients more and more, and I see it every day, our clients want to see, you know, want us to deliver, you know, legal services in a more efficient manner. There's products and services that are out there that are, that are doing that. And so I think it's going to come also from the clients, the pressure from clients demanding that of their legal counsel and law firms. Um, so I do think, you know, that's happening. And actually some firms are doing that. Um, you know, my firm, for example, we have a division, Nexal Labs, which is actually, we invest in legal um, startups, legal tech, um, and then we go and offer it to our clients. And so, you know, and, and we use it actually to sell when we're getting clients and pitching for work. We actually say the fact that we work with some of these companies and it'll help us deliver legal services efficiently. So you have some firms that are doing that, not everyone, but I think is it really going to come, the clients are going to expect that, demand that. And, you know, I think law firms will slowly start adopting innovation as a result. Excellent. So I have a couple more questions for you guys, real quick ones. And so, you know, before we got started recording, we did a little pregame, we talked about boats. And one of the things that's important to boats is knowing where you're going. You know, it's difficult to have a successful journey unless you know the final destination. And being that the case, exit strategy. So VCs and angel funders out there, you guys have an idea of where you want to end up. And I think that's important for somebody that wants to get into business with you is knowing what the ultimate objective is. So I want to go around. I'm going to start with David because he uh, put his hand up there. And where do you want to be in terms of exit strategy? Well, I think on our panel, two things came out, two very clear leitmotifs. One of them was exit or no, right? And I, I think Mike brought that one up, which was the question of, are you actually willing and planning to give up your company if you're a startup company and sell it to somebody or not? It's a great thing to have a lifestyle business and put something that is a job for you for forever and pass it on to your kids. But unfortunately, that's not investable, quote unquote, because as investors, we only, only make our money when the company sells. So the very first question is a binary one. Are you prepared to give up your company and sell it? And if the answer to that is yes, okay, then you have another bifurcation, which is, are you talking about a big mega, you know, go big or go home sale, you know, bet the farm and, and become a unicorn or at least try to get there? Or are you talking about what's called an early exit, which is something in the three to five year range, typically a merger and acquisition and M&A sale to a larger company, that'll be at a much smaller dollar amount, obviously, than an IPO or a big mega sale. On the other hand, it will take a lot less capital to get there. So there are sort of two different approaches as a startup company. Do you want to do something manageable where you're going to be knowing you're going to be selling for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollars within, you know, three, four, five years to a known set of companies and you're building a company to target that? Or are you planning to go for the fences and go really big and ultimately IPO or have a strategic acquisition? And I think just as kind of an addendum on that, that 
From a personal investment standpoint, I believe that if a company has a good value proposition, I don't worry so much around you know what the ultimate exit strategy is when they're early in their uh, life cycle because as a consultant, I worked with many private equity companies who have never worked in the legal vertical before. Yet, um, if they see the characteristics of a profitable business that's growing, that has defensible boundaries, that has differentiated product, they are absolutely willing to invest in that business. And there is sufficient capital out there to create the exit opportunities for good businesses, irrespective of whether there's a strategic exit. There's always going to be a financial exit um, at some level. Okay, so this is my last substance question. So I'm going to knock on the table to try to wake up some uh, innovators out there. So this is my last question. So it's got a title. So Ed Ed actually cued this up. He called it peyote in the woods. And so he was asking you what amount of activity percentage-wise in terms of law firm activity would be dedicated to artificial intelligence. But I'm going to add some of that. I'm going to call it kale in the streets. This is my contribution to it. I think there's a marketplace, a growing marketplace for virtual reality. In my prediction, this is just me, humble producer, looking out there seeing virtual reality, but I see a lot of power coming in the GUI interface or graphics user interface and also for the ability to communicate. So I think, you know, presentations, graphics, the ability to communicate through virtual reality will be a very powerful tool in the future. And I think that that is going to represent quite a bit of activity as well. So same question. So we have the uh, peyote in the woods and we have kale in the streets. What do you guys think as far as AI and virtual reality coming up? Let's start with Jeroen. So on AI, I focused in the, in the panel on, on, on large law. And my prediction was that most of the process law would be automated by AI. So my estimate is that somewhere between 70 and 80% of the work will be done uh, in an automated way. The other question regarding the... Virtual reality killing the streets. Virtual reality. So I think lawyers, uh, and I'm one of them, lawyers have a lot to learn in sort of UI presentations. Most often you see a legal report, due diligence report, and it's three or 400 pages of words. Um, if you compare that with, the, again, the accountants who have way more better ways of presenting things and in, they're in PowerPoint reports, which in most law firms are unused, I think we've got a lot to go as a profession, a long way to go as a profession in that, uh, in that area. So I think that we'll have to make serious steps into presenting stuff better. How about you, David? I think the first question, Peyote in the Woods, which is the effect of technology on legal practice, I think across all small, medium, and large firms, you're looking at 80% at least is going to go to AI or the equivalence of disruptive stuff. And I think much as I love um, artificial reality and augmented reality, um, I think you are way off base because that is, I think, irrelevant realistically to the legal world, either the world as it currently exists or the technologically AI disruptive world of the future. So I picked that very, very tiny. I'm wondering if Lorene's going to support me on this. So we turn it to you. <laughs> so uh, as I mentioned on the panel, um, in terms of AI, I think it'll be between 70 and 75%. Um, I was focused mainly on big law. And then uh, VR, virtual reality, I don't really see the application in the legal industry. I think VR is going to definitely affect a lot of other industries. But I just, I, you know, I, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around how it would be applicable to the legal industry right now. So right now it's panel three, Lawrence one. I'm looking to Mike <laughs> for some support here. Well, I think I was the uh, I was an outlier on the panel because I said, depending on segment, that AI would replace 40 to 70% of legal work. 
But I think there's a broader question that maybe represents the confluence of AI and virtual reality because there is a significant amount of legal work that happens that is not legal decision making, it is relationship building, it is uh, creating a reputation of integrity, and it is proselytizing and bonding with clients. And so can virtual reality replace a handshake? I don't think so. Can AI replace the trust that you put in someone to safeguard your information and to manage the intelligence and the data tools and the software that are going to get you to the right solution to your problem? So I think that there's still going to be a significant role for lawyers, no matter how much decision-making is actually incorporated into their portfolio. It's just a different role, perhaps. And the lawyers that will potentially be successful in that environment, it'll be less around their intellectual acuity around legal decision-making, because AI will support that, but more around their ability to adopt a global perspective and um, have the integrity and the relationship-building capabilities that provide the client with a reputation that's above reproach. So I guess nobody wants to partake and kill in the streets. No. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to close it out here with just one more question. We get some contact information. We have some listeners that might want to reach out, learn a little bit more about what you do, a little bit more about how they should reach out if they have a business innovation idea and they want to get in contact with you. How can they reach you? Let's, uh, we'll start back with Mike. Uh, I can be reached at mike at joplinconsulting.com. Joplin Consulting can be Janice Joplin or Joplin, Missouri, but it's Joplin Consulting, one word. And Lorene? I can be reached at Lorene at LorenePendleton.com. Excellent. And David? All of my contact information is available on the web at DavidSRose.com. And Yaroon? I can be reached at Yaroon.Plink at gmail.com. And let me spell that first name for you. It's Thank you. J-E-R-O-E-N dot P for Peter, L-I-N-K. Excellent. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guests for joining us and also our listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you heard today, please rate us on iTunes. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.